Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Mega, mega, mega events this week all over the globe, sports, business, deal-making, law, and one of the best people we have to discuss that uh, every week, good friend, even better content guy, head of Reuters Global, Dan Calaruso. How are you? I'm good, Rick. That's a very generous introduction. That's, that's very nice of you. It's the nicest thing anyone said about me all day. Yeah, no, I know. Well, it's uh, luckily for you, the day is young, so there's a lot more, lot more to be done. Let's get right to it. French Open begins this week at Roland Garros. Prize money up 14%. What's that all about? Well, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you and I were talking a little bit earlier. Um, uh, not a lot of big-name players at the Open, at the French Open this year. Um, who, Roger Federer is not there. Sharapova is not there. But you also made a really good point about the exchange rate. The, the prize money's up, but that's because the French are trying to compensate for a, a weak local currency, right, for, the, for a weak EU. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is that they wanted to make sure that the prize money is compatible with some of the other majors. So they're offering a prize pool of about $39 million, which puts it comparable to the Wimbledon and U.S. Opens, and about $2.2 million apiece to the respective men's and women's tennis champions. And by the way, even if you lose in the first round, you're guaranteed thirty nine grand, which is not bad. Right. I mean, this may be a simplistic question, but how much does that cut into, like, the French Open's take? On this, I mean, is that is it? A, it is serious sacrifice for them, or is it a matter of a, just a, a tweak these days? Well, it's a tweak, but it's straight out of margins. <laughs> so that's right. They would rather cut their margins and cut their return, but make it look like they are a business that's run uh, men and women gender equality and also comparable to Wimbledon U.S. Open. It's that important to them. And remember. The ratings aren't going to be great for the American audience. The time difference is brutal, right? I mean, the, to- the time difference makes it unwatchable in some, in, you know, at least at the early rounds. You're not going to get up too early for that. W- what do you think of, of the big, pl- big names not coming? Is that going to cut into the TV ratings? Is that, is that an issue? Um, and I'm talking global TV, uh, not necessarily U.S. Yeah, global TV especially. Well, Sharapova, you know, was coming back. Uh, she's not here. Federer, no, he's always a favorite, even though uh, Nadal and Djokovic are always the clay guys. And Serena Williams, uh, let's remember, this is her first major since she announced her pregnancy, and uh, everybody's going to miss her. So does this, does this leave an opening, um, hopefully? Because I'm kind of tired of the current stars of tennis. Does this leave an opening for someone to capture the imagination of the sport again? Yeah, let's get ready for an American man or woman. Let's get ready for the guys who are right below the cusp. You always have Andy Murray, but we may be getting tired of him. Uh, but who knows? Oh, we're so tired of Andy Murray. We're so yeah, okay. tired of but Andy that, Murray. That's just, you know, that's your comment on personality. If a guy doesn't jump up and down, then you're tired of him. You know, you're, you're one right, of those. You're right. You don't like the vanilla guys. They just do their jobs. I, I don't. I don't know what's wrong with you. Get over it. Okay, fine. Let's move on to a good old red-blooded American sport. Let's move on to our, our beloved Cleveland Cavaliers. You say they have a they have a jersey patch deal now. So this was logical. Remember, Adam Silver, the commissioner, gave teams three years to put together jersey patch experiments. StubHub did the first jersey patch deal 
Brooklyn did a deal with a computer company. There are four or five of them. But this one makes sense. Goodyear headquartered Akron, Ohio. LeBron grew up Akron, Ohio. But here's the big issue. $10 million a year, rumored. That's found money because nobody opened that category before. And now every other team in the league is going to look at $10 million a year and say, I want mine. Right. Is, so the patch is going to be actually be on the jersey or it's going to be on the warm-ups or is it on a, on a shoot-around jersey? What, what's the... Uh... Do you know the specifics of it at this point? Yes, it's going to be on the jersey, and it's going to be more and more like the soccer jerseys. Wow. Uh, football does it in practice. Baseball does it in practice. And they're saying, let's start it. Let's see what it does. It's not intrusive. The Players Association says they want to do it. Remember the slippery slope argument. You can hear the slippery slope and the door opening right now. <laughs> well, listen, I, I think it's I, – I always – anything that – American professional sports teams can do to raise themselves up from their underprivileged status, from the, the poverty that they're, that they're trapped in is, is fine by me. But I'm not a fan. Count me as not a fan on that one. Well, yeah, but that's $10 million that the uh, Cavaliers could give away to, uh, to needy children. Oh, they're not doing that. I get it. Yeah, unless, yeah, unless it's a JUCO transfer um, uh, who can rebound. Um, let's talk about I'm a traditionalist. Let's talk about the Wheaties box, the, the, the actual okay way for athletes to make money uh, outside of things. Jordan Spieth. Yeah. A golfer gets a Wheaties box. Not bad. I didn't realize the Wheaties box was not only an Olympic year thing. It's, so uh, just because I don't, I don't buy a lot of cereal anymore. But, but the Wheaties box still has some clout. A lot of clout, especially in the golf community. And let's remember that Byron Nelson, who is one of uh, Jordan Spieth's heroes, his first endorsement was a Wheaties box way back when. Uh, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Ben Hogan, Babe Zaharias, Tiger Woods all had Wheaties boxes. And Spieth, by the way, uh, let's not hold a bake sale for the guy, right? He already has deals with <laughs> AT&T, Coca-Cola, Titleist, Under Armour. And they're expecting to add brand value by over $3 million because of his Wheaties box. And Under Armour's logo appears on the T-shirt Spieth wears in the cereal box. They're garnering about 200000 worth of brand exposure. He didn't make the cut in his tournament in Dallas at Byron Nelson's tournament, but he carries on Byron Nelson's tradition. Yeah, but this is like a harmonic convergence of sponsorship money and exposure, right? I mean, this is, this, is, this is a nice deal for him. I mean, it's a mainstream deal. A mainstream deal, just like AT&T, Coca-Cola, those kinds of deals. And he is your classic next mainstream guy. But he's got to read the memo that says sooner or later you got to return to your old form. Right. you got, you got to win at some point. Right. That's, that's the point. It is Memorial Day weekend coming up. Uh, I know it's one of your favorite events. Talk to me about the Indy 500. Well, I'm, this is my bucket list, so I'm going there, and this is my first time. Next week we'll, we'll do it from there. And uh, usually Memorial Day has other stuff going on, but uh, I couldn't pass this one up because I'm going to watch it, and it's going to be really cool. And the bottom line of all of it is that a great opportunity for cross-marketing. So there is a Jeff Teague-sponsored Lazier, Buddy Lazier, a driver, 100 first Indianapolis 500. They sponsored number 44 Team Teague sticker. The guy's an indie guy. He's building a facility gym in town. Plus, Zach Veach. We had him on last week. A.J. Foyt this week. He drives the 40 Chevy Indy car. The bottom line is a sponsorship of Indy Women in Tech presented by Guggenheim Tournament taking place at the Brickyard Crossing Course in September. And so, it's a big deal. So this, by the way, is a showcase not just for racing, but for golf and basketball in many ways. 
Yeah, especially with Teague involved, and and it is. I mean, it is the, still one of the tentpole events on the sports calendar. Uh, I remember when I was a young sports writer back in I don't know '89 or '88, being on duty during the Indy 500. I was never much a fan of it, and it was like one of the most fun days I had uh, in my early career. 1888 or 1889? Oh, you're killing me. 1989. Right. Come on. Well, you know what? Here's the deal, and it's more important than any of this banter. This event about 350 to 500 million dollars of economic impact 1911 when the Indy 500 was run for the first time they had the whole city had 200,000 population Indianapolis now there's more than 200,000 people that attend the race itself so obviously come a long way speaking of old AJ Foyt and tremendous icon in the business his son Larry basically runs AJ Foyt Enterprises we taught the Jack Veach his car uh, last week, uh, A.J. Foyt this week, and it was an honor to catch up with A.J. and Larry. It's interviewing an icon about his view of the business and how much it's changed over the last few years, A.J. Foyt and his son Larry. An interesting event, to be sure, the merger of golf and sports, but all in the context of business, the Indie Women in Tech Championship held in September at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, we're here to unveil a car that Guggenheim uh, is underwriting on behalf of Indian Women in Tech. But more important, we're here to learn a little, bit, a little bit more about the business of racing generally, the business of A.J. Foyt Racing, and who better, Larry Foyt, president of A.J. Foyt Racing. How are you? How are you? Good. Thank you very much for doing this. So you drove in the 05, 04, 06 Indianapolis 500 for, for A.J. Foyt Enterprises. How, how scary was it driving for your dad? <laughs> Well, I had driven for him for a while, so I was used to it uh, over in the NASCAR series. Yeah. So, um, but my dream was always Indianapolis. This was, I mean, this race is what I grew up coming every year of my life and watching Dad race in it leaves quite an impression on a young kid. So, so even though my career ended up heading toward, toward NASCAR and stock cars, my dream was to get to Indianapolis and, and drive an IndyCar around Indy, so I was just glad I got to do it. Well, we'll certainly talk to your dad about the perspective of racing then and racing now. But give me your perspective on it as a NASCAR driver, on an Indy driver. You know, comment generally about both businesses. Have they gone at the same speed? Are they different? Are they similar to where they were when you were, you know, actively participating? Absolutely. Well, and, and business is actually the reason I ended up going to NASCAR because back back then there was uh, the split in the IndyCar leagues, which everyone talks yeah. about the split, and which we're still recovering from, but it feels like right now IndyCar has huge momentum. Um, the split seems like long ago, and, and everyone's back together, and, and IndyCar's growing again and has a great feel around it. Uh, Business-wise, I mean, to have sponsors like Guggenheim come on board and, and be tied with this LPGA event is just great for IndyCar. So, Let's go back to that for a minute. Now you've been you've been running uh, AJ Foyt Enterprises for a decade, mm -hmm. and when you were involved in learning the business or knowing the business, this you call it a split and it's over, but it was a massive schism. I mean, it was Hatfield McCoys. So at the time, who were the rallying forces basically that caused it to come back together, and and how did life in the division different than life as it is today? Sure. Well, what you hate to see are the fans divided, because yeah, right. you had some fans that were loyal to one side and some fans that were loyal to the other. But for us on the business side, the good thing was, as I came back over and started to get involved in the business side, and you kind of say how that happened, uh, in, in my second Indy 500, I actually broke my back in a pretty big crash. So I started uh, 
wanting to get more involved on the business side as I was stepping out of the car. And um, the biggest thing with us is here you have A.J. Foyt, you have a legend who won everything, won in many decades, front engine cars, rear engine cars. And at the same time, I felt like our team hadn't really taken that step into the modern era, and we were still a little bit set in some old school ways. So that was my thing. I said, Dad, if I come into this, you have to let me modernize. We have to start charging ahead. And that's what's been great. And, and it takes great partners to do that. We, we got aligned with ABC Supply. Now they've been our sponsor the last 12 years, which is uh, unbelievable. In fact, now they are the longest full-time running sponsor in IndyCar, which is great. And that's what's let us grow. Back then, we were one car. Uh, we're up to two and now three in Indianapolis with the Iowa Championship car. So it's exciting. So the, the idea of asking your, your, uh, uh, the namesake, the icon, to kind of leave you alone and let you run the business. I'm sure he said, yeah, I'll do it, but, but, but did he really? Uh, of course not, and, uh, <laughs> and, and I wouldn't ask him that, because uh, especially when uh, he's always our, our biggest, my biggest bank of information. You know, he, he's still, it, you know, it's amazing how up to date he is with everything, every day. I, I rarely make big decisions without talking to him, of course. I mean, he's still the boss. And, uh, and his, his experience and knowledge, you just, you can't put a number on that, it's unbelievable. Is there a tension ever between uh, preserving the old and modernizing, and it's always something business schools warn about, but how do you preserve the legacy and move on and be relevant? Well, I think we pay a lot of tribute to all his success, and, and that's one way I think we keep. It's amazing even how at his age the fans, even at Indianapolis, still love him. I mean, when he walks out through Gasoline Alley, the fans just go nuts and, and really appreciate all of his accomplishments. And I think the thing is, too, he, he can do it all, which is pretty rare. I mean, he was a mechanic, an engineer, uh, a driver, so he really knows every part of that race car, and people respect that. The building of the brand, and maybe more important, the sustaining of the brand. And the textbooks all talk about the uh, Arnold Palmers and the Jack Nicklauses and the younger LeBron James and the and the Michael Jordans. You know, AJ Foyt's in that category too. How do you look ahead to the longevity of the brand, and how do you make sure you sustain it? Well, we want to win. I mean, that's yeah. number one for us. Is getting back in victory lane. And it's been since 2013 since we won a race, So, and it's been since 1999 since we won the Indy 500. So we know we have our work cut out for us, and that's um, by growing and modernizing. We feel like we're getting more competitive every year, and, and that's what we want to do is uh, the Foyt brand is built on winning, and that's what we want to do. I'm sure there will be another Foyt perspective on this, <laughs> but do you like the way the business is going? I do, I do. Like I said, we want more wins, and. Um, and you know, AJ reminds us of that every day because that's what he wants to do is win. But uh, we've got great partners, and, and that's letting us grow the team to where we need to be. A little nervous about fans, you know, NASCAR. I mean, you have to ask that question of the France family, and it's the, you see the attendance, television attendance. How do, how do you deal with the challenges of sustaining excellence? Well, I think we obviously live in a much different world than we did in past generations where maybe the automobile was the most important thing in your life and was a huge part of your of your young young adult life where now technology has advanced so far to where uh, you know telephones and and data and all the information we have as as young kids are, are kind of leading the way. So I think that really trends towards our cars. Our cars are fast and sleek um, and they're really supercomputers running around the racetrack gathering data all the time. So I think it, it, it'll really uh, appeal to young fans. So speaking of young, young, young driver like Zach Veach, I mean, you look at that car 
and and plus he's uh, four foot eight, uh, 38 pounds. How, how does he, uh, you know, he, he bulks up every day and he gets in that car and he's an athlete. You must be proud to see a kid like that in that car. Well, he is. I, I've seen some photos and video of him uh, doing his rock climbing where he did gains a lot of his strength and it's, it's really impressive. So uh, a lot of these young drivers, what's great is uh, we've got little guys like Zach who are strong, but then also bigger guys who get it done as well. So it's it's really all over the board, and uh, and I think we have uh, a really good driver in Zach. Well, Larry Floyd, I really appreciate your perspective, but we need to go from the perspective of one of the youngest guys, he's looked like he's 12, Zach Veach, <laughs> to an icon. So we've already heard a little bit of a story from A.J. Floyd, but in the first time winner of the Indy 500, 61, 64, 67, 77, only driver to win Indy 500, Daytona, 24 hours Le Mans, 67 IndyCar wins, uh, seven IndyCar championships as a driver. When you say you're voted driver of the century, you got to stop there. What else are you going to say? <laughs> and I mean, I well, mean, it's just amazing. you know, I'm just be glad to be named amongst some of the great, great race drivers. A lot of people, you know, oh, you're the best. No, I'm just glad to be named amongst them. Well, because in their days, be like golf. The yeah. golfers today are some great golfers. Right. But then you look at Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and Rodriguez and all them, yeah. what says they could beat them in their days with what they were playing with? Right. That's the same way the racing's changed with the cars and technology. Yeah. So, so I'm just glad to be named amongst the greats. Well, and that's the only way you can probably deal with the argument because it's one of those things where there is no answer. Nobody has well, the right answer. That's what I said. Yeah. Who will ever know? Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and But your perspective is very important because you can talk about the barometer of change. You win your first Daytona 500 in 72, and the 24-hour Le Mans is 67. So 67, that's a lot of years. That's 50 years or more. <laughs> 60 years when you can see the changes in the business. So how, what, what's the biggest change in the well, industry? The biggest change I see is safety. I mean, when it comes right down to it, because I've got a lot of burn scars where you hit and the cars blew up and all that. That's the biggest thing, the seats that you got. Before, when you run stock car at Daytona, you had a seat about like this. Now you're in kind of a capsule. So what I guess I'm saying is that's the biggest change is safety in racing today compared to what it used to be. Are the drivers, you kind of answered this, but I'm asking anyway, are the drivers better today? Are they stronger today? Are they more mentally tough today? Or was it the good old days? Well, they're not near as strong as some of the older guys. There you not go. even close. And yeah. I'll tell you why, because the cars are so much easier to drive today because you got all the ground effects and all that. And like when I had to change jets or something, halfway through a 500 mile race, I had to do it manually. Now we tell them on a computer, go to map one or map two or whatever. Okay. The steering wheel costs more today than my racing whole operation used to be when I raced. So what I tell a lot of the young drivers, don't get mad and throw that steering wheel anymore because you're talking about a half. You're going to pay for it. Yeah. You're going to pay for you're, it. You're going to pay for it. Because I've right. thrown many of them, but then it wasn't about $40. <laughs> so, so they're not stronger. Are they smarter? Are they more strategic? Or was it the good old days? I don't think they're any smarter. And the reason I say that because they're driving everything operating off computers. Now. Yeah. You know, it's just like in golf. Look at what Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and all them played with. Yeah. And look at your clubs today, what they're playing with. You'll never know if them golfers were as great as these or were they, you just don't know because yeah. it'll never happen. So you can just look back, them were some great golfers and some of my idols, you know, back there. And just like uh, Ben Hogan, 
always wore his gloves. And then last time I went in there, I said 67, he seen my red gloves and everybody else wore their fireproof ones. And I got scars on my hand. I could not drive with them real thick gloves. And I guess I still got about, he must have sent me 25 or 30 pair. And uh, I still got about two or three brand new pair because you always wore them out. But I always raced in golf clubs. If you ever looked at my hands, I always wore the golf clubs. Do you so back then, you had to have feel in your hands and also your butt. Yeah. Now the computer tells you everything. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to ask you where, what you wore on your butt. We'll leave that one. We'll leave that one alone for another All day. Right. But here, here's a, here's a kind of final question for you: Is the industry going in the right direction? Is it better today? The business of indie racing, the sport itself, is it better today, or is it was it better years ago? Well, I think years ago the crowds were bigger and, and picking up every day, better and better now. And because like when I started in stock cars and modifieds at home and made it, people followed you. It'd be like some of your amateur golfers. They start real little and as they go bigger, yeah. you got a fan base that follows them until they get to the top. And that's what you don't have today with the race drivers. They come in and a lot of their parents have got a lot of money. They buy them a ride because they know it's a lot safer. But back then they didn't want to mess with it because it's very easy to go six foot underground. Yeah. Very easy to go six foot underground, but the guy didn't do it, and he is a legitimate icon, and I'm honored to, to have you do this. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Harrell. The producer of the show, Alex Cohen. Associate producer, Bethel Hobte. Assistance provided by Tanner Simpkins and Carlos Waddick. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Colarusso.